Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, we have the privilege of hearing from Yang Zhao, a force in education academia over the past few decades. Yang Zhao has written a variety of books on education and on education reform. The titles and contents are both enticing and provocative, and they provide the perfect entry point for a fascinating discussion. This is an opportunity to learn about Yang Zhao's most recent books and to discover the common themes and differences that emerge across all three. Hi, Yang Zhao. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, Jane, so much. Uh, it's great to be here. We love being able to have these conversations, and you are such a prolific writer that uh, I know the audience is going to be thrilled to hear what you have to say. So let's dive in. I'm going to start off, Yang Zhao, I don't know if you remember this, but many years ago, I had an opportunity to hear you speak in Stockholm, Sweden, and there was a series of conferences that were called the Stockholm Summit, and I was invited to speak there, and I remember going into the big stage and listening to this amazing fellow by the name of Yang Zhao, and I've been hooked on your research since then. So that's how I met you, but you know the audience might not know you, so tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you to being an academic. Well, thanks, Jane. Well, what brought me to academics is something really simple because I am not good at anything else. Uh, and that, <laughs> I don't find uh, that for a second. <laughs> that's not a. That's not even a joke. That's a real thing. I was uh, born, raised in a Chinese village, and I was really bad at everything the village valued. You know, driving a water buffalo, climbing the trees, planting rice, planting sweet potato. I was really just bad and did not like it at all. And luckily, there was something called a school. It's called a school. It's not really a school. You got to have another farmer teaching group of kids from six villages. And uh, so I, I somehow, you know, find the sanctuary and uh, started reading and then went to college and uh, got really interested in how people learn because, uh, you know, I was uh, an English teacher an English professor and trying to understand how people learn language and why it's so hard for many people to learn another language. So got that and then was doing some research, really, uh, you know, but not much of a real research, I guess, because I just did have a, had a bachelor's degree. Then I came to the U.S. and uh, did my uh, graduate studies at the University of Illinois and got into, happened to be, again, at the right time when technology was booming, when the web was just getting started in 1992 and got into technology. And so, uh, and then got a job at various places actually, uh, but I stayed at Michigan State University for the longest time, about 15 years. And uh, then University of Oregon for another five and at University of Kansas and University of Melbourne now, you know. so so. So most of my research really has to do with human learning. And if you think about human learning, there are many, many ways to approach that. You can approach that from classroom, from schools, from government, from policy, from assessment. And there are many different things. So I've dabbed actually into 
various aspects of education, but really cares a lot about how do we help people learn better. It's an amazing story, Young. And, you know, most people don't think, I mean, we all have villages in our, our native lands, but it's incredibly motivating for people to hear that you can get all the way from a village in one country to moving eventually to another country, to attending university, becoming a, a very renowned academic. And I think it inspires all of us to do the best things that we can be doing. Well, I think it's, uh, uh, I just finished a, a memoir, you know, really of, uh, I, I wouldn't even call it a memoir, more of a case study of my own journey. I invited another professor to write about it. We call it, uh, the book is called Improbable Probabilities. That is, in all of us, Jane, you're absolutely right, are born with probabilities. You're born in a tiny village, wherever you are, you're defined by that. And now today, you know, with the, big concentration on equity, on diversity, on social justice. We have to really think about how schools, how education in general, help each and every individual student to leave their village. You don't have to leave your village physically, but your mind, your heart, your soul needs to think about how you can make a bigger contribution to humanity inspiring way to start this conversation and a great way to be thinking, you know, not only for us as educators, but for the students that are in front of us. The, the potential is so incredible. And uh, that's why we're educators and that's why we do what we do. So a great way to start the conversation. Young, one of the things that I absolutely love about your writing, you've got a great sense of humor and you've got a great way, you start off with really interesting titles for your books that are unusual in the world of academia. Tell me about, you know, why you do that. Why do you start off with those really gotcha kind of titles? Well, I think, you know, uh, when I'm thinking about writing a book or writing an article, I don't do it really for myself. You know, I, I really want, want people to, to know what you are trying to communicate. I think you got to think about the audience, about, you know, why do I need to tell this story? I think a lot of times we, we live in a world of luxury, which we don't have to think about value for others. You know, that's why sometimes, you know, Jen, I, I don't like the idea, but learning for learning's sake. Some people can afford to do that, but not everybody can do that. Okay, somebody can. So I don't really like just, oh, just passion, drive, driven. So you always think about others. You know, if anybody wants to spend $15, $20, buying a book, spend an hour, two hours, or 10 hours reading a book. There's got to be something for them. There has to be something. And that drives me to think about titles, to think about what the titles can mean. And uh, so that's how you get started. And I also, you know, I'm a person who, you know, English is my second language. And I started learning English when I was 14. So the titles, maybe they're interesting because uh, I, it's my second language. No, that's what's actually extraordinary about it. I'm I'm bilingual as as well. Uh, you know, I've I've learned French, and my my husband is from France, and we speak French at home. But you know, I don't know if it's the same with you. But the thing that's the hardest to grasp in my second language is the nuance of humor, and that's what I think is incredible. Is that you've got you know really interesting titles that indicate a completely profound understanding of the language. And I know it's your second language, so incredible. Let's dive into a few of those books. And uh, 
I've kind of highlighted three that you've written relatively recently. I'm going to start off with What Works Can Hurt, Side Effects in Education. And it's a book that you wrote in 2018. And, you know, again, just that idea of we're doing things in education that we think are really good, and yet we know that there's some side effects. Or you bring in this idea of, but are there side effects to even good things that we're doing? Tell me where that book came from. What were you thinking about? You know, that book is probably one of the most important books I think I've contributed. Uh, is, um, it really started about uh, 2003. So 2003, I was helping organizing a, a conference. It's the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation. So it's the countries around the Pacific Rim. And the idea was to, to talk about education reforms. So at that conference, I heard from East Asian countries, they all want to learn from US, from Canada, from Australia, and all the Western countries about how to teach creativity, how to become more innovative. But at the same time, you look at the US, actually Canada to some degree, as well as Australia, so we got to learn from Eastern Asian countries. And, and then so people have the ideas, if we combined both, then we would have the perfect education. I said, no, that's not possible because I know US education, I, mean, I know European education, I know Australian education, it's not possible. So I began to analyze so what's good and what's bad. And in essence, it comes to a point that not everything people want can be achieved. So at that time, for example, people said, okay, the East Asian countries are doing great. They have highest test scores in international testing, but why don't they have as much creativity? Well, I think the education system there was able to produce great test scores, but not great individuality, entrepreneurship, and creativity. The same thing is that in the US, is that if you look at test scores, they may not be great, but the students have very high confidence, enjoy schools more, have greater satisfaction. So that got me to think about how come the same thing, you can produce one, but not the other. And later on in the US, of course, around that time, you know, no child left behind, they came up with something called What Works Clearinghouse under George Bush. It's a lot of money. You know, the federal government wants to build a database to show what works. I said, well, what works can hurt. So that, that's how it started. It really took me over really 15 years to write that book because I had to get, get a lot of data, a lot of evidence, a lot of history to understand whatever you do you will lose something, you know, there's no free lunch, which is very true. So, but then as parents, as teachers, as school leaders and students, you should know by doing this, you will get this. By doing that, you will get that, but it's at this cost. So that's, I, I think that's, that's the entire book is really about helping people understand what works can hurt. I think it's a really interesting perspective because, you know, as you mentioned in the book, so often when we talk about education reform and education transformation, we're talking about the good stuff. And we're talking about, you know, this is the approach and this is the impact it will have. This is the intended effect. But we don't really get into what are some of the unintended 
or the adverse side effects. And I think you make a really good point with that. And, you know, the case in point as far as trying to emulate countries to be able to get those high PISA tests results. And if the only thing that you're doing is putting a complete focus on a standardized assessment policy that punishes those that do poorly and rewards those that do well, well, yes, you may improve, you might get some of those intended results that you actually raise the test scores, but the side effects and the impact, and you know, maybe that's why it took you so long to write that book, because it's over that time period where you see the adverse effects, you see those side effects that they were unintended. I mean, we didn't want communities to be traumatized and schools to be traumatized and teachers to be teaching a very narrow curriculum. But those were some of the side effects. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about uh, education in Canada or education in the U.S. in different places, you know, there's another side effect which we typically ignore because people always use a term called unintended consequences. I use side effects because it's really the two sides of the same coin. So you cannot really escape. But, you know, remember when, when we're dealing with children, once they're damaged, they're damaged forever. That's another human being. You know, it's another part of education research, which I talk a bit in the book, is also about, you know, if you, for example, if you destroy the student's confidence by forcing them to memorize, let's say, the 50 states of the U.S., short term, you know, whether you remember 50 states actually does not matter that much, you know, except for the test scores. But if you destroy that confidence, when do you get it back? For some children, you may never be able to regain that. But that confidence is necessary to live a thriving life. Again, the side effects outweigh the advantages of some of the things that you're going to be getting out of that intervention. And um, yeah, you know, I think it's something that that's the kind of book that we should read and read again and read again, because I think it's something that we constantly have to be thinking about. Let's move on to a second piece of work that you had. Uh, an education crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And you wrote that or it was published in 2019, of course, before the pandemic. So, you know, the, what was the education crisis that you were talking about or referring to? I mean, now when we think of crisis, we think of the pandemic, but you wrote that prior. What were you thinking of? What was the education crisis you were referring to at the time? That title came from Rennie, um, a well-known scene which has been attributed by many people. You know, a, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. It's been attributed to Churchill. So it's a well-known kind of scene. And also there's a lot of people talking about like in Chinese language, the words, two characters uh, that says crisis is actually dangerous opportunity. Chinese phrase called so it's dangerous opportunity. So it's, in essence, the word to translate English uh, word crisis is actually implies opportunity. So any crisis itself is actually an opportunity if you take a positive attitude toward that. And so the education crisis we've been describing was not new. I mean, it's been going on for decades. People are talking about how education does not work, how education is anti-human nature, how education kind of homogenizes students, how education mechanizes students. We've been talking about a lot of that crisis for a long time. However, very few people actually took the action to change that. 
Because everybody can blame others in the system. Oh, it's the government. You know, they have this stupid testing, the stupid you know, curriculum standards. I have to do this way. And the school leaders say, well, maybe it's the teachers. They are resisting change. They don't want to move. And teachers, maybe it's the parents. And parents always, you know, holding to, onto their past. I said, no, actually, we want to go study. We want to say, okay, so that book used to be have a title from Yes, But to Yes, And. You know, how often you go to a place, a lot of people agree with you. I actually have spoken to many places. Very few people have said no. Most people said yes, but I cannot do this. So that book really took us, again, a long time, a group of my colleagues and students. We studied education in Canada, Port McMurray, actually. We studied education in Indiana, in Australia, you know, in, in the U.S., in, in China, different countries. We were trying to find who has taken actions. And in the end, in the book, basic in documents, students can change their education. And we have examples of that in that book. Teachers can change education. School principals can change and systems can change. In essence, if you desire to change, you can. And that book is really a collection of examples from different kind of angles to change. We've seen good schools, traditionally very excellent schools making changes. We've seen traditionally really poor schools making changes. Because I've heard people say, oh yeah, they can make change because they're a good school. And some people say, oh, no, they can make change because they're a bad school. Everybody can make change. So that's not waste the crisis. So that's the main idea. It's amazing what you're saying, Yang, because in the, the series that we do with Knowledge of Signature Leadership, I have amazing panelists on, and we talk about all sorts of different topics, equity and leadership and well-being and, you know, just a, a real plethora of topics. And almost every time we circle back, I always try to kind of circle back at the end to remind people exactly of what you're saying, is that in some ways it's easy, and in some ways it's a, a status quo uh, stance to say, well, I can't do anything about it because you know the district won't do it, or the, the government won't do it, or the teachers union, or the et cetera, or, or, or. And what we try to circle to the end in is, what can your role, if you're a school principal, what can you do about this? If you're a district leader, if you're a policy person, if you're an academic, if you're a student who's with us, what can each person do to be trying to make that change? And eventually, I mean, you're trying to get whole school change and whole system change, and you have to have all those players playing a role. But I think it's a really hopeful stance to be able to say everybody can start the process. You know, uh, Jen, that's so uh, insightful. In essence, if you look at education, I think there are people who want to make very grand changes. It's impossible. You actually have change has to start with individuals, individual students, individual teachers, individual schools. Then you have a social movement to make changes. But at the same time, yes, we should always demand others to change. But everybody should accept we are the change maker. So one line I always tell people, I said, you know, it's much easier to be the driver of the change. You know, drivers never get car sick. Passengers, <laughs> right? So if you drive the change, you do much better, you know. And so, so it's 
I think that another thing I heard a lot of people was always ask, so well, who else has done it? I said, I know a lot of people have done amazing things, but I really don't want to tell you because you are the one who will make the change. I think a lot of people want to delay the misery of change. You know, actually, change itself is exciting. And so, so I, I would like to say everybody, despite all the constraints, can do something. That's really a strong message that everyone can do something. That something may be tiny, maybe small, but you can get started with that. And this, honestly, is about what when people ask me to say, oh, what, what do you think of your life? I say, well, think about my life. There was nothing. And I was actually writing about this. There's no opportunity for me to do anything. But I somehow managed to do strange things, and that's allowed in that context. You may not lead to anything, but you got to go do something exciting. So that's why I think this one, an education crisis, is not something to torture you, but something that invites you. You also talk about the idea that even the best status quo isn't good enough. And yet when things are good, sometimes it takes a bit of a crisis to be able to motivate people to get going. And, you know, I was thinking back to my experience in a, in a school district and, you know, when we would be talking about, you know, changes in pedagogical practice and, you know, giving more agency to students and their families and, you know, et cetera, really changing the way that instruction, teaching and learning looked like. It was a harder sell to schools that, you know, typically did really well, you know, whether they did well on the provincial assessments and, you know, there was high satisfaction with the parents. It was harder to you know, in, you know, why would we change? Things are great. And I love that line at the beginning where you say, you know, even the status quo isn't good enough. We found uh, in this book quite a number of very good schools, under 70, 180, 200-year-old schools making big changes. But by the way, you know, when we say making changes, it doesn't mean you throw away your tradition, throw away your history. It is you are a, a school institution of changes. It's a history of change, history of invention, history of innovation. So that, that's, I think, I like what, what you were saying is that no school should stay the same because you have different students, students change, context change, the future changes. Well, and that gets into your next book. You know, it's the evolving world that we're in. And you know, I think intuitively we we grasp the idea that things that we were doing 30 or 40 years ago, you know, are not going to make sense to the kids that are coming through our systems. We've got, you know, a whole different demographic of kids than we did 30 or 40 years ago in most of our communities. They've got all sorts of different needs and the future that, you know, what they're walking into in the world, what's happening in the world right now, the kinds of things that they'll be doing in their work are completely changed. And, you know, that's a perfect lead into your third book that we're going to talk about, which is Learning for Uncertainty, Teaching Students How to Thrive in a Rapidly Evolving World. And you really dive into those topics. So tell us a little bit about that one. Well, I mean, the main title, think about learning for uncertainty. That's really the main thing. I think um, I mean, we, we wrote that book, actually. The other author is uh, Bill McDermott. He, he was the former dean of education at the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill. So we worked on this book together during COVID, but the uncertainty is really not only about how the world is uncertain. It is also about how we human beings like uncertainty. If you think about our children, 
when they are born, the whole world is uncertain to them. And then they seek certainty. Human beings have the habit of seeking certainty. That's why we have all these chain restaurants. You know, go to McDonald's here, you get the same, you know, treatment. You know, <laughs> because the, then you you have the same hotel. You know, that that's say uh, all westerns like this, all Sheraton's. So we seek them, but at the same time, we actually can thrive in uncertainty. And of course, now when I mention about COVID, COVID is definitely is an uncertainty or uncertain certainty. If you think about COVID, we knew there would be a pandemic. But we, you know, we had H1N1, we had Ebola. You know, they were controlled. But boom, this one hit. You know, if this one didn't hit, some others going to hit. We know it's going to happen. A global human pandemic would happen. But when and how, we don't know. Another thing is we want to talk about uncertainty is that is you can reduce uncertainty because think about technology. You know, now we complain about social media. Oh my God, it's so bad. It biases us. All this us, you know. But then we use it. So if we had people better educated about social media, about search engines, maybe they can redirect. You know, the future is uncertain, but depends on who uses this technology. You know, we also have technology that can robotics. They can do testing, and they can put machines together that can assist. Elderly people, you know, chatting with them. You also have robot. You can also have artificial intelligence that completely destroy humanity. I'm actually right, right now is a good example. Look at the Russia invasion of uh, Ukraine. How much money we put into technology, and that technology can be destructive, but it also can be productive. Depends on who uses them and what use we put this to. So we we think schools in essence. Have not been preparing students to deal with uncertainty, and how do you work with the uncertainty? How do you develop certainty out of uncertainty? How do you guide the development of future? That book basically is really an accusation of current education system trying to teach certainty to our children. You look at today's education is we teach certain answers to certain questions. Yeah,、uh, reading. And math, as an example, we basically are telling you this is the answer to this question. I mean, all the math questions have been answered from a hundred years ago. You know, think about you know the, all those things and the reading stuff. So, but where is the uncertainty? Where do we invite our students to take the responsibility to develop a better future? There's two pieces that you talk about there, Yang, and, and the first is just that concept of uncertainty and certainty. And I and I agree. I think most people just automatically think of uncertainty as being a negative, and certainty as being a positive. And you know, you give great examples about how that's not really the case. And like you said, going right back to a young child, and you know, the kinds of structures that are in place so that that uncertainty is not overwhelming. And so that gets at the idea of how do you thrive within a world of uncertainty, and it's you know everything from climate change to pandemics to changing future of work. It's all of those things. But how do we frame it so that that's a positive? And the only way that we can frame it as a positive, and that brings me to the second point that you're making, is the distinction between machine skills and human skills. And at one point in time,、um, you know, the human was doing both ends of that. 
And as the future of work evolves and the capacity of the machine, you know, and the AI and all of that continues to grow, then it really is about the human skills. And so how do we make sure that in our school systems, yes, if you look at the example of the invasion by Russia into the Ukraine, the technology was amazing and the machines have done what they need to do, but it's the humans that are making the decisions on what they should be using that technology for. And that's where we have failure. So how do we in education systems really be thinking about developing those human skills? Jay, I mean, you, you did a beautiful summary and elaboration on what I said. I think it, well, I think, you know, the, the first thing schools should do is treat students as human beings. Like you said, you know, human beings used to do a lot of machine jobs. You know, that's, I, I love what you said. It, it is that we used to do a lot of machine jobs. It doesn't mean we should do that jobs, but we couldn't, we had to do it, right? So now machines replacing human beings or replacing human functions is we designed technology to do that. You know, I, I used to travel in different countries, but you know, one of the things, I remember in China, if you took the train from Beijing to Chongqing, in those mountains, we used to have human beings standing there at each place holding the light. Remember that? I mean, it's miserable life, right? That job should be replaced. And then you have all those ocean liners today on the ocean. You know, you got to have human beings on them. Actually, now, actually, with you don't need to have human beings on those boats anymore. They can't shift around. So, so think about that is actually the idea today. We need to get our children to be more human. And the second point is, if you want children to become more human, what is human being? So I've summarized as students are natural born learners, intentional learners, and diverse learners. If you help each person to learn, to learn to be great, and to learn to serve a purpose so they can create solution to problems of the world and for others, we build interdependency. So it means there's no job, there are only careers that you can pursue. So that's passion-driven, that's strength-driven. So that's really where I would like to see education going. Young, you know what? I think one of our biggest uh, supporters now in education to drive that agenda is actually business and industry. And, you know, when we look at, you know, whether it's different studies that have been done with CEOs of, of major companies, when they talk about the skills that they want to have their employees have when they're coming in the door, they're recruiting, and what they develop during their career, they've said very clearly that technical skills, those are the kinds of things that are changing so quickly, they do that within their career. But they're starting to talk very loudly and clearly about things like communication skills, problem-solving skills, social-emotional skills, where they have a good sense of themselves, where they're able to interact and relate to others well. And I think that that's something that in the education sector, I don't think we've always been very welcoming to the business community. And I think this is a place in time where we actually can help move that agenda forward so that the learning that is taking place inside of schools and outside of schools is really the kind of quality learning experience that our kids deserve. I would agree. I think, uh, you know, businesses are moving forward and businesses have to compete with innovation, with the creativity, with ideas, you know, they, they have to do that way and they have to adjust. I think about the disruption to the globalization. How do you have to adjust? Actually, this is, uh, 
you know, I don't want to dive into politics, but look at the U.S. now, they short supply a formula. It's a very interesting, very interesting situation. I mean, I don't have babies, but I feel bad for those moms and fathers, you know, who have babies. But, but the problem is so complex. Just having people address that problem. Imagine the kind of skills we need. You know, you get all this data, that data, this piece, but you bring them together to create a better solution. You need different kind of people. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, with, with business and industry talking so much about that, it really validates, you know, when you walk into a classroom and you see a teacher organizing, kind of going from group to group, and the kids are problem solving through a situation like that. And it's a real life situation and they're doing research and they're finding out all the possible and they're working together and they're challenging each other and they're creating a, a you know, a presentation for after so that they can argue their point about how things should be done. That's what's happening in the workplace as well. Those are exactly the skills that they need to follow to solve that solution to find more formula for baby formula, right? I think that there's some synergies there that we can really uh, take advantage of. You know, actually, if I were a teacher now, I would organize my students to study the baby formula or study COVID. I mean, it, it's so uncertain, but the solution could be so different. It's just really just fascinating, right? I, I think it's just today is the time to do that. Exactly. Young, this has been fascinating. I'm going to wrap up with a couple of quick questions. When you look back at those three books, I mean, they were written in 2018, 2019, 2022. Is there a common thread across all three? Yeah, I think, you know, um, the common thread is fairly actually simple. We can all rethink education. Education needs to be rethought. You know, we have one term, education. But education can mean so many things. So, you know, what works may hurt is really rethink about outcomes of education, educational goals. You know, in the next book, you know, um, we'll talk about the possibilities of changing education. Who can rethink? Who can make changes? And the uncertainty is about is that if we rethought education, what the future would be. And all this, there's another underlying theme which is not so explicit, is the idea about, think about individual students. You know, that's exactly why we have you here, Yang Zhao. I love the way that you write and the way that you talk about teaching and learning and education systems. I always leave inspired. So now that you've introduced it, you've written a bit of a memoir. I'm going to be knocking on your door again because I can tell that, you know, the educators that are out here listening to this podcast, they're going to want to hear what the next book is. So please come back and join us again. Thank you, Jen. Thanks to Yong for joining our podcast today and for giving us a glimpse of the man behind the books. We are humbled by the young boy growing up in a small village in China who worked his way to the highest echelon of academia and educational research. Yang and his books are approachable and keep us thinking about how to transform our schools and our education systems. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in a roundtable called Teaching Students How to Thrive in a Rapidly Evolving World, where Yang joined Alma Harris as a featured panelist. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time for a podcast with Mark Greenberg as he shares his work on caring for educators. Mm-hmm.